You're listening to Notes from Norwich. Well, we're back again for, what is this, episode four of Notes from Norwich. No, no, Marguerite, it's episode four. We've we've done three already. So I'm Chris, and I'm here with Marguerite, who is just holding up three fingers in the video camera. This is our fourth episode. Marguerite, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm very well. And uh, I'm also here with Jan. Hey there. My two friends in Minnesota. What's the weather like there at this point? Is it? Wretched. Oh. It's dark and cold and rainy. That's no good, because we no. always get the same weather 12 hours later. So Yeah. Have fun tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. I just planted 18 uh, lavender plants in the ground, and friends of mine said, you're awfully brave for putting them in the ground while it's still April. You'll get but, lots of water, lots of rain. Okay. Um, um, yeah, hopefully they do fine with the cold. How's the weather there? Are you still in the sunny? Yeah, it's sunny in upper 50s or something. So this week, I want to say thank you to Miss Fishhooks on Reddit oh. for a, a nice comment. She says, I am really enjoying this podcast. It is giving me a lot of food for thought. Thank you for introducing me to Julian. Well, lovely. that's lovely. You're very welcome, Miss Fishhooks. I hope you enjoy this fourth episode where we talk about chapters seven and eight, I think is our work for today. Sounds right. Where are we starting off? Marguerite and Jan, who's, who's going to start this ball rolling? Well, we open chapter seven talking about Our Lady, which I'm always a fan of. The juxtaposition of the exalted position that Mary holds with her self-conception as little and lowly was very beautiful in my mind. She has this exalted wisdom and truth, as Father John Julian translates it, um, in contemplating the Creator. But she sees herself so little and so lowly, so simple and so poor in relation to God. And I can't help but think about how that, that formed Julian's self-conception as she walks through the revelations. Because she's, she's met by Our Lady early in the, early in the showings. And um, she models to Julian this kind of um, this deep humility that is then paired with exaltation and wanting with God, you know? So it reminds me of an exercise, I don't know, somewhere in the five years that I spent at seminary, um, with, with passages from the Bible that exemplify our theological anthropology, our sense of what a human being is within the created order within our what god has created within our relationship to god um and i wrote down and kind of the class fell into one of two different camps the one camp kind of leaned towards what is it psalm 8 that says you know what is humanity you've created them just a little bit lower than the angels like in this created order there's God, and then there's the angels, and then hum humankind, and then everything else. And so we are, except for the angels, we're about as high up the hierarchy as you could possibly get. And then other people said, 
you know, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Like, you know, as for me, I am a worm and no man. There's, um, there's sort of two different ways you can go when you're thinking about what human beings are. You can emphasize how um, glorious humanity is, the, the crown of creation, uh, if you look at it from one perspective. And on the other perspective, all of creation is just fine except for humanity. Like, we're the ones who mess it up, right? right. We're the ones who need saving. The cats and the mountains and the whales and the stars, they do what God created them to do. We're the ones <laughs> who, who disobey and ruin it for everyone else. Right. So it seems like it, in this beginning of chapter 7, our Lady St. Mary, as, as Dame Julian calls her, occupies both of these at the same time. Mm-hmm. That there's a way in which Mary, and maybe by extension us, maybe, that, maybe I'm going too far with it, but that humanity is simultaneously great, high, mighty, and good, maybe slightly less great, high, mighty, and good than Our Lady St. Mary. But we're also little and lowly and simple and poor. Mm-hmm. And it all has to do with relationships. Like we can be as amazing as we can be, but compared to God, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, the brightest flashlight is still nothing compared to the sun. Right. Is that, is that too far? No, I don't think it is. Um, I think that. For Julian, it was Mary's. It was Mary's acceptance of her role as Mother of God that that sent her in, um, sent her into heights, as it were. And Julian also is accepting a role in this in this story of hers, where she is being asked to. I mean, I don't think she doesn't really realize it until chapter eight, but she's being asked to interpret all these things that she's seeing and then share them out with the world. So that Mary says yes to what she's being asked to do. And then Julian says yes to being asked what she is supposed to do. Um, Julian makes a lot of the difference between the elevated state of God and the lowliness, excuse me, the lowliness of humanity. But she also talks about how, how wonderful it is to be a human being made in the image of God and be brought into oneness with God and be shown things by God. So I think that, you know, I think that your take on that is, is just fine. Quite honestly, I'd agree. Um, and I think <clears throat> this first passage of chapter seven gives us a hint of how she holds the two together that uh, it is in this very recognition of our small and lowly state in relation to God that we are filled with the grace and exalted. She says, So Mary's filled with this reverent dread and humility. And thus, for that reason, she was filled full of grace and of all kinds of virtues and surpasses all creatures. So I I think here I see Julian saying, 
yes, we we are incomparable next to God. Um, and it is in in embracing that role, like you, the language you used, Marguerite, it's, it's in embracing that position that we come into our full potential of being just a little lower than the angels, of surpassing all creatures. You know, that, and I think this is, we, we get a clue here of how Julian sees the two themes, because I think the two themes are very much alive throughout the book. Um, and this is, I think, a clue of how she sees those themes as tying together and how they are in relationship with each other. Tell me about your relationship with Mary. What do you, do you have a Marian devotion? I don't know who's going to go first. Jan, you go first. Yeah, I do. Um, it's, uh, she's actually central to why I'm a Christian again. In, I think it was episode one, I talked about the detox experience and the experience as I've come to understand it. I didn't realize I'd be talking about that so much on this podcast, but I suppose it makes sense. I decided to quit drinking on my own without any help. And it turns out that I was physically dependent on alcohol, even though I did not realize it. And so the process of detoxing when you're physically dependent on alcohol is grueling. Um, and I was at a point where I was ready to give up and I was preparing myself to die because I didn't think there was any way I could get through it. And I felt this, um, presence, I've described it as feeling like there was a comforting hand on my back and a voice saying, you don't have to do this alone. He's right there. I didn't understand it in Marian terms at the time, but as I've um, sort of stumbled my way back into the life of the church through the sacraments, I've come to understand that as um, Mary's intervention uh, or God's intervention through Mary. I, d I described it to a friend, like sometimes when we're too hurting and stubborn to look to God in our pain, God sends his mother to help us look to him. And so this, that formative experience, which is what then propelled me back into the church um, has kind of suffused my, um, my spirituality. And so I have a, a really deep love for Mary. I see in her a reclamation of motherhood from, uh, from my childhood that had a terrible experience of motherhood. I see in her the encapsulation of the church and of redeemed humanity. Yeah, I could, I could go on, but I, I do have a deep devotion to her. And it's been pivotal in my spiritual journey. That's wonderful, Jan. Um, that's just beautiful. I am probably less of a Marianist than almost anybody I know. Um, I do, however, relate very tightly to the Annunciation, to that, uh, to that moment when Mary was 
met with went when she met with an angel when an angel came to her and asked this big thing of her and she said yes and the self emptying of that is something that i that i strive to and i look i look to mary i look to that moment with mary and i look to mary that um that that is that that is a guide for me to to achieve that because i think that that is what i think that is what our faith is and i think that's what prayer is and i and julian embodied that i mean julian um certainly had that as a goal and relied on that as a, as an image um this the whole self emptying you make yourself very very little very very empty very very humble so that god can fill you I have a sermon about how uh here I am the servant of the Lord or the handmaid of the Lord let it be with me according to your word how those are the 17 most important words ever said by a human being in all of history yeah. yes yeah. yes but I'm not going to preach that sermon to you right now but advent for every year that's yes uh, it's sure. my, in my greatest hits list yes <laughs> you should link to that in the show notes uh, maybe. <laughs> it's always a work, work in progress. It's always a little That's bit fair. better. That's fair. Um, I don't even know if I have a written copy of it these days, but that's okay. Uh, anyone who's listening to this podcast who wants to, just come to uh, Oshkosh, Wisconsin on Advent 4 this year, and you'll hear me preach it. Um, let's talk about visions of drops of blood, if you want yeah. to. Yeah. Quite evocative imagery. Yeah. So this is uh, in chapter seven, and we have we have this. I'll just read a little bit of it because there's just so much visual impact. During all the time that he showed this, which I have just described in spiritual vision, I was watching the bodily sight of the abundant bleeding of the head. That's the head of Jesus. Continuing, the great drops of blood fell down from under the garland like pellets, seeming as if they had come out of the veins. And as they emerged, they were brown-red, for the blood was very thick, and in the spreading out they were bright red. And when the blood came to the brows, there the drops vanished. And nevertheless, the bleeding continued until many things were seen and understood. The beauty and the lifelikeness was comparable to nothing except itself. So, uh, bleeding. This is um, this is pretty far removed from precious moments, Christianity. <laughs> yes, very. She was not shy about talking about this this vision. She was not shy about talking about blood. It had great meaning to her. I don't think. I'm not even sure that she completely ever completely understood what it all meant it changes it starts out one way then it then it changes color then it disappears and then it keeps going it has what can it possibly mean this blood i mean we know we have some ideas about blood and and what it means in terms of, of sacrifice in terms of life force in terms of um giving it was comforting to her she loved it <laughs> It's, it's, it's a puzzle. It's a puzzle. And it's something that 
I personally never tire of returning to this image of Jesus bleeding and bleeding and bleeding and Julian watching and watching and watching and just taking it all in. And she does try to just, I mean, she describes what she sees in great detail because she remembers it so vividly. But in terms of meaning, she can only just skim the surface, I think. And we can even less skim the surface of it. The phrase that stuck out to me um, in this reading was nevertheless, the bleeding continued. Uh, this kind of continual bleeding. It made You said something in an early episode, Chris, that uh, talking about this idea of the eternal sacrifice, that somehow, somewhere, always, Christ is on the cross suffering for us. And that this seems evocative of that kind of concept, that like this... This blood is never, never exhausted. That the the blood continues, and she speaks elsewhere in the revelations about the world being washed in the blood, and this sort of, um, you know, the the blood dripping and the brow at, at the brows disappearing, but never ceasing to flow brings to mind this idea of um, this is this, this thing that she is seeing, this passion is not a moment in time, really that she, she is witnessing it as, as it exists beyond time. So there's something that's starting to happen in, in, medieval Christianity about a hundred, 150 years before Julian starts to have her visions, which is that there's a, a shift in the devotional life of Western Christianity, especially in, uh, I think it's, I mean, it shows up in all sorts of places, but especially in kind of German and low countries, Dominican circles, which of course then through trade, there's a lot going on between um, the Baltic Sea and the North Sea and Norwich. There's a lot of trade flowing back and forth between all these places. But there's this devotion that's that's developing around the sacred humanity of Jesus, the five wounds, the sacred heart of Jesus, and then by extension, you know, the immaculate heart of Mary. This is all developing. Um, for reason, you know, I'm not an expert on on the dynamics of all these spiritual movements, but this is something that's coming up from really the beginning of the 12th century. And so the blood of Jesus, the wounds of Jesus, the sacred heart of Jesus, it's perpetually burning with, with the flame of love for humanity, but also perpetually bleeding for the sake of humanity. It's in the water, in a, in a sense, in the well, in the blood, maybe. <laughs> um, and I suspect that there's plenty of that in Norwich and plenty of that in Julian's context. But there's something particularly intense about Julian's description of the blood, of bl- the droplets of blood. And, you know, we're going to go on and see more of it in the, the coming passages it's 
it's almost obsessive, like her level of detail in describing this bleeding. So, I mean, I think there's something that sh- that that is shared to all writings by mystics, not just Christian mystics, but mystics, um, you know, of all of all types. That there's there's the vision, and then there's the interpretation of the vision, and so I think you know it feels to me as though. Uh, mystical visions are authentic if the person who's having the vision seems completely puzzled and curious about it. Like if if a mystic says, yeah, I had this vision and I understood in an instant what it was that I was seeing, and here's the description, that person's trying to sell you something. That's not a genuine mystic. Like a genuine mystic should be completely befuddled and consumed by the vision. Um, because the vision comes first, and it doesn't interpret itself. Uh, so, in a sense, there's this, uh, and it's it's like the disciples in their interaction with Jesus all the way through the Gospels. Like they have a relationship with Jesus, mm-hmm. but they don't understand that relationship. They're constantly right. getting it wrong. Peter, Thomas, yeah. they're constantly not quite getting who Jesus is. And he asked them, you know, who do people, who do you say that I am? Finally, one of them gets it right. Peter says, oh, you're the Messiah. And then like the very next verse, he messes it up again because the, the encounter is primary and then the interpretation is always playing catch up. And that's true for the mystics as well. Mm-hmm. I agree with that a hundred percent, Chris, that is, if, if something comes from God, it is almost certainly not going to make sense the way that we humans can um, put out ideas and make sense of them. I mean, we're marvelous at theses and declarative and, you know, um, sentences that, that make sense to everybody and points that follow underneath. ABC. I mean, we can do that with our eyes closed. I mean, we're we're top notch at that. But when something comes to us from God, it's always blurry. It's always it's it's as as um, as brilliant and as decisive as it can be in terms of like, for instance, Julian remembering all the specific things of it or anybody remembering something specific about what they saw or heard or thought they felt they saw or felt, the actual meaning is always going to be muddled. And that's that's because the meaning that God sends us is something that we have to work with over, over a period of time. And it has to it has to seep into us in ways that we don't even know, changing us and making us into who we're supposed to be, who God wants us to be, without our conscious, logical, um, directive way of of changing things. I mean, we can change our habits, um, but we can't change our our inner being the way God can change our inner being. And so, yes, 
if something that a mystic says, an alleged mystic with quotes around it says, and it makes a whole lot of sense, and you can see right into it right away, then it's it's just it's just that person thinking of some clear ideas, which may or may not be you know bogus or or um, dishonest, but it certainly is not it's not the true mystical thing that happens. And I think the fact that, um, you know, Julian doesn't write the revelations until years after the showings happen, attests to the, the ever unfolding nature of these, these showings in her, in her heart. Um, it is skips ahead a little bit in chapter eight, but there's a little bit where she says, um, the bodily sight ceased and the spiritual sight remained in my understanding. And that's a theme that pops up a couple different places throughout that there's, uh, there's this event and then the, the meaning of that event, that, that event continues in the sense that she experiences it, experiences its meaning throughout her life afterwards. And that that is part of the unfolding of the showings. Uh, they, 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 didn't come in this tidy, tidy package that yes, there's this like, there's this vivid imagery of the blood as herring scales as water off the eaves of a house. And then there's the unfolding of what that means. So yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Marguerite, that the, that if it's presented as a tidy package that, or a, a package that was tidy right away, we should be suspect of it. And this is very much the opposite, I think. I think the whole second half of chapter seven really makes it clear that, that Julian is aware that this revelation is a gift that she doesn't deserve. And that this, this kind of thing, you don't reason your way into you receive visions of it, but no man can be aware of this marvelous friendliness in this life unless he receives it by a special showing from our Lord, or from a great abundance of grace inwardly given from the Holy Spirit. Like, you can't earn a a vision like this. Mm -hmm. So what about this lovely phrase that's halfway through the chapter, this showing was alive and active, and hideous and dreadful, and sweet and lovely. Yeah. Exactly. That has always stuck out to me because I I don't think of hideous and dreadful and sweet and lovely. Those those four words don't apply <laughs> to the same thing at the same time. Yeah. Or maybe they do if I think about it long enough. I think they do for all of us who see the see in the crucifixion the redemption of the world at some level maybe not at the surface level of immediate affective reaction but the the truth of the crucifixion being the site of redemption is that something hideous something shameful something truly horrendous is at the same time a glorious victory and a washing clean and the making new. 
I think here the, in this, in this sentence, she's capturing the beautiful paradox of the crucifixion that it is simultaneously horrendous and astoundingly beautiful. Is it the paradox of human life? How do you mean human life? Is that what every life is simultaneously sweet and tender and horrifying? (laughs) If you take any one person's life and somehow sum up all of the moments, there's always going to be sweet and lovely. There's always going to be hideous and dreadful. It's true for everyone I know. It's true for me. I remember one and forget the other Mm -hmm. and forget one and remember the other, depending on my mood. But if I take a look at my whole biography, and I've led a pretty moderate, easygoing life, Every life is touched by a mix of hideous and dreadful and sweet and lovely. Mm. And somehow we hold within ourselves uh, this paradox. Well, Jesus took everything, all of us and all our, all our lives, everything that we are, to himself on the cross. And so what you're saying, Chris, about how our lives are this mixture that would all be on the cross with Jesus. But I think even beyond that, the crucifixion can be seen. I mean, one, one way of looking at it is, is a triumph, a triumph over evil, a triumph over death and a triumph over sin. But another way to look at it is that it is sweet. I mean, what a word sweet is to use for this. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a great big jump because you think of something sweet. It's like, you know, what your grandma, you know, said to you when you were confirmed or what's the little kid next door brought you a cookie that they made. I mean, that's the kind of thing that you, you think of as, you know, Jesus dying on the cross is, is that. It is that exact kind of thing that is just an outpouring of love and a giving, a complete and total selfless giving. And that's why that's why it's sweet and lovely for me. It's that uh, first verse of, of the ancient hymn that we know as Faithful Cross Above All Other, the Verse and sweetest wood and sweetest iron. Ah, oh, yes, yeah. Sweetest weight is hung on thee, and I just checked, and that's in the Latin as well. Dulce lignum, dulces clavos, dulce pondus sustinet. Because I thought, you know, maybe that's you know it's sweet in English, yeah. but maybe some translator um, polished it up a little bit. But no, dulce no. in Latin sweet. is is sweet. It's it's been there since the beginning. Yes. So anything else on chapter seven, or do we want to crack on to the six things interpreted in the showing of the bleeding in in chapter eight? I think one thing I want to highlight um, in chapter seven is the parallels. So we, we opened by talking about the Blessed Virgin embodying simultaneously the lowly and meek and the high and exalted. 
Um, and towards the end of chapter seven, she kind of constructs a parallel between that and Christ, that he who is highest and mightiest, noblest and worthiest, is also lowliest and meekest, most friendly and most gracious. So there's, uh, even, even as Mary's embrace of her meekness results in her exaltation out of Christ's majestic graciousness comes his taking on of our lowliness and meekness. Um, and I, I love that parallel structure. Do we need to have a conversation about humility in the Christian life in a world that wants to humiliate us all? <laughs> um. uh. <laughs> <laughs> or is that for a different time? That's, I think that's an entire conversation in itself. I do too. Okay. We will put a pin in that and come back yeah. to it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's a little teaser, dear listeners, for some future episode that will be the humility episode. Because it's so essential and yet so challenging. Anyway, so... Let's crack on to chapter eight, maybe. So in this showing of the bleeding, I interpreted six things. All right, let's talk about the six things. Well, she says, right, she's watching this bleeding, and she keeps saying, Benedicite Domine, blessed be the Lord. So she's obviously happy about it. But what are these six uh, things that she sees? Well, she sees the wound, and she sees Mary. And she sees God. And then she realizes that all creation is small. And especially as compared with God. And then she sees that Jesus did this all for love. And then she sees that everything that is good is God. Which is a really big statement for me. I mean, you know, once again, these six things that she says aren't parallel. And so, you know, my English major background tells me that, you know, she, re- she should really have revised this and made these things parallel and made them make sense. <laughs> but anyway, those are the six things. Some very, very concrete, like the blood, particularly um, special, and then she goes on to these abstractions where she sees God and then all of creation and then love, (laughs) then that everything that is good is God. The the fourth one, the all of creation, you know, that's, that's the hazelnut we talked about. Yeah. The way she presents it is interesting because she opens with, I know that heaven and earth and all that is created is ample and large, fair and good. So it opens with its vastness. And yet, the reason I saw it as so small is because it's in comparison to the presence of him who created it. Right. It's, it's again, this like this juxtaposition of this vastness and this goodness with this little littleness in comparison to God. Um, the holding the two together 
is really striking to me. I'm putting together these very broad brushstrokes over these first few chapters that in Julian's mind and heart, there are two, two big concepts, two big brushes that are making big brushstrokes on the wall at the same time. The one is the sense of scale between the creator and the creation. And she's trying to hold in the limitations of her very human heart simultaneously uh, the very minuscule and the very vast at the same time. And I, you know, there are um, websites that you can go to where you can use your mouse wheel to scroll between like, you know, our human scale, here's six feet, and then you scroll down and it takes you down to six inches and then six millimeters. And, and you can keep scrolling down all the way down to subatomic particles. And then if you roll your mouse wheel the other direction, it scrolls up you know, past the size of my house, to the town, to the state, to all of North America, to the globe. And then you keep going out into the solar system and out into the galaxy. And it's very hard for us to um, to keep all those scales in our limited concept. You know, we, we, we can't keep the vastness of the universe and the infinitesimally tininess of subatomic particles. We can't make those two things fit in our concepts at the same time. We can lean in one direction or the other. We can have a microscope or a telescope, but our brains don't stretch that far. And it seems like Julian is trying to do that, mm-hmm. or she's being led into that realm of awareness mm-hmm. where there's a sense of scale. Mm-hmm. But then there's also this sense where she's she's drawn into this realm of sacrifice, where it's the the sacrificial life of Mary who consents, the sacrificial life of well, the sacrificial bleeding of Jesus. There's not really much to Jesus so far, except for the fact that he's bleeding. He's on the cross and he's bleeding. Like that's all that Julian has told us about Jesus so far. God who made everything in his love, and Jesus is bleeding, and that's that's where we've gotten to. Um, and so some, somehow she's trying to make these intersect, or she's, she's just kind of holding them up side by side and trying to live within them. I think maybe she's aware that they're overwhelming. I think maybe... Um The the second framing, you so sort of suggested two framings, one she's trying to hold these two together and one she's being invited into this. I think I read it more as she is being invited into the, the point, the person in which these scales are held together. That I... Maybe maybe at this stage she is trying to wrap her mind around it and hold it together. But the as the the showings unfold, we see, and then I think probably culminating most beautifully in the Lord and Servant parable, that it is in Christ, the suffering Christ, that these scales are ultimately held together. Not that we can comprehend it, but I I see it as a she is being invited into the mystery of these scales. 
kind of cohering in one person. I don't, and it's it may be an insubstantial uh, distinction, but um, I think for me it's helpful to see this as uh, mystery in the sense of a spiritual reality made known that it is in Christ, it is in the the suffering incarnate Word that the absolute minuscule scale of our human life and the telescopic scale of the divine drama are held together. Um, And even though we at first, and from our point of view, our framework, see them and can't hold them together, I see in in this whole book, God inviting Julian into into this and saying like yes for for you holding these together is impossible but in Christ in the person of my son I have held him. that's the significance of Jesus that he's that he is that I mean that is what he is he is the one that embodies it all that holds it all together yeah chapter 8 all right so she has these six interpretations. The last one I want to go over with a highlighter in two different colors. The sixth is that God is everything that is good as I see it, and the goodness that everything has, it is he. And then she segues back. It's like she comes out of the vision and she's back there in the room. Because remember, she's on death's door. The curate, this is, you know, it's like uh, um, the Wizard of Oz, right? So it's like she comes back out of Oz, and she's surrounded by Auntie M and all the others in black and white again, gathered around her sickbed, and she comes out of her reverie, she comes out of her vision, and there they are. Then I said to those who were around about me, it is to doomsday today for me, which, by the way, I hope on my deathbed, I'm able to turn to anyone in the room and say, today is doomsday for me. That's, that's, uh, that's hardcore. <laughs> Amen. This I said because I expected to have died. For on the day that a man or woman dies, that person experiences the particular judgment as he shall be without end, as I understand it. Which is a fascinating piece of like insight into the expectations that people back then had when they die. Mm -hmm. So this is the, she's had these visions and these six interpretations, including this last one, that God is everything that is good. This is what she brings back out of her vision with a message for the people who are gathered around her deathbed. Yes. Um, I think that she thought it was going to be over at that point. I mean, of course, she's writing it now and she knows it wasn't over. But I think at that point in the actual history of it, she thought it was going to be over because she said, in all this, I was much moved in love for my fellow Christians that they could see and know the same that I saw. For I wish it to be a comfort to them because all this sight was shown universally. Hmm. You know, so she's basically saying it's too bad I have to die because I can't really tell anybody about this. 
And then she goes on and says um, that she tells people that uh, they should love God more. And that, you know, that those are supposedly her last words to the people that are around her, or so she thinks, because seeing these visions moved her to such love for her fellow beings that she wanted to share it. I mean, her, her saddest thing, she would have been fine to die, she says, but her saddest thing was that she wasn't going to get to share this with anybody. So she has this understanding that she carries into her deathbed with her, because I guess it's there in the surrounding culture that on the day that a man or woman dies, that person experiences a particular judgment as he shall be without end. Right. So I suppose she carries into her deathbed this expectation that, oh, I'm on my deathbed. I'm going to have a vision of what judgment is like. So she has this vision, and then she snaps back out of it a little bit, and it says, it, it feels as though she has this message, oh, before I go, let me tell you what I've seen, which is that God is good in everything that, uh, the goodness that is in everything, that everything has, is God. So mm-hmm. don't worry. You know, but I think she still expects that this is going to be, yeah, as you say, the the end of, the, this is the vision of the particular judgment that she's expecting. Uh, but there's more to it. It's not the end of the story. There's this urgency that still comes through, even even as she's writing years after the fact. There's this, therefore I beg you all for God's sake, and I advise you for your own benefit. She's, even years after the fact, she's filled with this, um, this intense, this intensity of the desire to pass on this message. She She knows it's not her doomsday at that point. Um, but there's still an urgency with which she like shares this with us, which is really, really powerful to me. As I, as I imagine the kind of urgency, the tone of voice that she must have said it to them mm-hmm. with um, on that day when she thought she was on her deathbed. And I then imagine her years later saying it with that same urgency maybe to somebody at the window who came for spiritual direction to, to hold that urgency, that fervor uh, to love God more is inspirational sounds too anemic of a word, but um, it is inspiring to me. She wants to be believed. She wants to convey this idea of endless goodness, joy, and delight. What I'd like to know, and what I've I've never been able to completely find out, and maybe one of you know, is was religion in the 14th century, early 15th century, was there joy and delight in it? I mean, was was that a thing then? Was that a common way of 
experiencing your faith? I don't know. I mean, because nowadays when you're in church and people are hearing, hearing the word or singing hymns or saying prayers, there's an, there's almost always an underlying feeling of joy and sharing and whatever, maybe too much that it masks the, the seriousness of the passion. I mean, I would certainly argue that, but, but was it like that? How much joy was there in Julian's day when people were praying together and worshiping together? I mean, was it, was this radical? I mean, I'm not an expert on it, of course, but the, the little that I've dug into suggests that, you know, like today, there's a range of attitudes. I think, you know, it seems as though for the majority of of people, it's an, there's it's obligation. It's keeping you out of hell. Um, it's what you do. Um, but there are people who are able to tap into an immense amount of joy. I think that's probably true for people today, you know? Um, but that, I think it's a, a really complicated and big question. Yeah. I'm just wondering how unusual Julian's reaction to all this is. It's a good question. Like how, how shocking would, would something like this have been? Right. I don't know. That's for one of you to write a dissertation on that. Oh, I, I think we know somebody we can ask. <laughs> yes. We're drawing to a close of our time. We're trying to keep this to roughly an hour-ish. We're drawing to the close of chapter eight. Yeah. Is there anything else that we need to say about this? I don't think so. It reminded me, there's a prayer in the prayer book, in the Book of Common Prayer. If you were listening to this podcast and you don't know it, we're uh, the three of us are Episcopalians. Um, and so we have at the center of our worship life something called the Book of Common Prayer. And that has a bunch of different prayers in it. One of them, this comes from the additional prayers section in the right to a rite of burial. And it goes like this. O God, whose days are without end, and whose mercies cannot be numbered, make us, we pray, deeply aware of the shortness and uncertainty of human life, and let your Holy Spirit lead us in holiness and righteousness all our days, that when we shall have served you in our generation, we may be gathered to our ancestors, having the testimony of a good conscience, in the communion of the Catholic Church, in the confidence of a certain faith, in the comfort of a religious and holy hope, in favor with you, our God, and in perfect charity with the world. All this we ask through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. 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 And it seems to me that Julian would agree with all of that prayer. I think so. I think so, too. Um. Just as, as themes go, you know, she comes back out of this reverie with a message for those gathered around her deathbed. 
And so, you know, here we are in this, uh, we started this, I think, in response to the, to what's going on in the, the world around us, the coronavirus, COVID-19. Uh, a lot of people are trying to figure out, you know, where in our Christian tradition do we have resources um, to make sense of Christianity at a time of plague, as was going on when Julian was having her visions, sandwiched between outbreaks of plague. So I think that there's, you know, if if the one thing we take away is that Julian comes out of her deathbed vision with an awareness that everything is held and exists and continues to exist because of God's love and that God is everything that is good and the goodness that everything has, it is God. I think those are pretty good, hopeful things to be left with. Yes. So that's my final word on, on chapter seven and eight. Do you have anything, anything else or shall we leave it there? I think leave it there. Blessed be God. Blessed be God. <laughs> Blessed Benedicite Domine. Benedicite Domine. All right. Well, Marguerite, Jan, thank you for joining me again. I'm sorry that we missed out last week, but you yeah. know, life and uh, we didn't we didn't promise anybody anything, so we're going to miss a week here and there and we'll just produce this when we can. Yeah. Um it's good to talk. Yeah. To the two of you and to consider again the revelations. We'll be back for our next episode whenever that happens, probably in a week, but we'll see. Okay. So, bye for now, listeners. Bye for now to you, too. Bye-bye. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode. To find out more about Dame Julian, the Revelations of Divine Love, the Order of Julian of Norwich, or us, check the show notes to this episode. You can reach me, Chris Arnold, the producer of this series, at Apple Tree Pods on Twitter, or on Facebook, you can find the page Apple Tree Podcasts. That's all for now. We'll talk to you soon. May God bless you.